When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello, you're very welcome to The Tonight Show. HSC Chief Executive Paul Reid has warned there is huge stress on the healthcare system due to rising COVID-19 numbers. We don't see ourselves at the peak of it, unfortunately, just now, because everything we're seeing is growing, and that's with transmission levels in the community, uh, but equally in terms of hospitalisation. So it still feels like we're entering something rather than exiting something right now at this point in time. Uh, if and when it does begin to turn down, which evidence across Europe it will at some stage, uh, we still expect to be seeing the impacts of this well throughout April in the healthcare system. Dublin City Council CEO Owen Keegan wants the council to aggressively restrict road space for drivers in favour of cyclists and pedestrians. Dublin editor for the Irish Times Olivia Kelly will be here with more. And later, the Academy launches review into this incident. As always, we want to hear your views. Do get in touch. The hashtag tonight, VMTV. First tonight, Chelsea Football Club owner Roman Abramovich and Ukrainian negotiators were among a group who suffered symptoms consistent with poisoning after attending peace talks in Ukraine. The Russian oligarch is involved in negotiations between Kyiv and Moscow. A little earlier, I spoke to Sky News correspondent Ender Brady and I began by asking him what happened to Roman Abramovich. So we know that there were negotiations on the night of March the 3rd. It went on quite long, late into the night, finished up about 10 p.m. And from what we're hearing is that the negotiation team then retired, retreated to an apartment in central Kiev, and they began to feel ill. There were three people in total who reported blistering on their skin, uh, constant painful tearing of their eyes, and among them was Roman Abramovich. So he was there effectively as a middleman, really, um, you know, taking messages from Moscow to Kiev. There were other people there as well representing the Ukrainian side. So two Ukrainians fell ill and Roman Abramovich. Now they have all made a full recovery, but it did take some time. Apparently, the symptoms continued for the next day and did not abate for a full week. And a lot of question marks tonight over who would have been behind this. Yeah, and do they have any idea, Enda, who is responsible for this and actually who it was that they were trying to target? Well, it's a very good question. Who was the target? Because they ended up damaging both sides, if you look at it. Two Ukrainians ill and Roman Abramovich as well, one of the most high-profile Russians in the world. He's currently banned from the UK, sanctioned here, sanctioned in the European Union. He's been traveling a lot. He lives mostly in Israel now. He got Israeli citizenship. He has been seen in Istanbul. He has traveled to Moscow. He has been back to Kiev. Um, it's a very difficult one, but there is speculation tonight that perhaps hardliners in Moscow 
who are not happy with the peace talks and do not want peace, that this was kind of like a warning shot, if you like. Um, but it appears they've used a chemical weapon. And if they have, he's certainly got away very, very likely indeed, given what we've seen in this country a few years ago in Salisbury. Have the Kremlin said anything about this? And do we feel that this incident is going to have any impact on those ongoing peace talks? Nothing whatsoever from the Kremlin, and I very much doubt if there will be any discussion or comment on what has happened. But the peace talks and the negotiations are ongoing. Obviously, the Turkish government are heavily involved on the diplomatic side, trying to act as an honest broker, a middleman, just to get people together and to draw an end to the conflict and to stop the war. Um, so the negotiations will continue, but I would imagine Abramovich security team will be absolutely livid over what has gone on here. Uh, there are whispers that whatever substance was used, the only thing that was consumed during the meeting and negotiation, water and chocolate. So it could well have been placed in those substances. All right, thank you for that update. Andrew Brady, we'll leave it there. Well, joining me here in studio is Government Chief Whip and Minister of State for Sport, Jack Chambers, Social Democrat TD, Gary Gannon, Dublin editor with the Irish Times, Olivia Kelly, and Professor of Immunology at DCU, Christine Losher. You're all very welcome uh, to the programme. Um, Professor, I want to start with you and to look at those COVID numbers. Um, 250,000 cases of COVID that we know of in the last month. Are you worried? Yeah, I mean, the concern for the high case numbers at the moment is that just the sheer volume of case numbers is going to impact. And we're seeing that impact already on our healthcare system. So our hospitalizations have been climbing for the last few weeks. And even though we're looking at maybe 15 to 20,000 cases a day, it's likely that that's underreported. So our highest case numbers at the moment are because of this new variant. It's a subvariant of Omicron. So we're still dealing with Omicron. We're just dealing with the subvariant, much more transmissible which means that the levels in the community are really high. The risk of catching COVID at the moment has never been as high. Um, and I think that it's, it's not that it's any more severe than the other Omicron variant that we've been dealing with, but the translation into hospitalizations has been very clear over the last few weeks. And that's a concern because the healthcare system serves more than just COVID patients. So I suppose at the moment, my concern is, is that there's not a very clear message to the public at the moment about what we should do to minimise the risk of transmission. And we've all heard the, the criticism from the WHO of our country in the last, in the last week about not doing what we can do to reduce transmission. And I think it's really fair to say we're doing a lot to reduce it. So we have a really high vaccination wall. We have very high levels of immunity. We've run a brilliant booster programme. But there's a very simple thing that we should be doing at the moment, which is to advise the public more strongly about mask wearing, because it's not going to solve the problem, but it will reduce transmission. And um, we heard the HC chief Paul Reid saying today that he feels we're at the entry of this particular surge, not the exit. Where do you think the numbers could go potentially? I think they'll potentially double again. So we have seen a doubling in the last few weeks. I think we'll see a doubling again before it starts to plateau and starts to drop. And this surge will pass. But at the moment, the risk of COVID in the community is very high. And the WHO advice is always that we should do every single thing we can do to reduce transmission. And I feel like we're doing a lot, but we're not doing everything. And that mask wearing, I think, is really key at the moment. Minister, you have it there. 
WHO has said we should do everything. And as it stands in Ireland, we're actually not doing very much at the moment in terms of restrictions. Well, You'd accept say, that. I, I recognise we have very high case numbers in our community, but um, as was mentioned there, um, we have very clear guidance and advice from the CMO on what people can do around taking personal responsibility uh, around the public health advice. Um, so there's 700,000 people eligible for a booster and we know from what Paul Reid said today a significant number of people are presenting uh, to hospital with COVID um, who are being treated with COVID in hospital have not yet uh, received their booster and it's important to, uh, to supplement their existing level of vaccination with a booster and also encouraging those who've gotten no vaccine uh, to, to get it because we know that 50% uh, of those in, in ICU have had no booster and 35% of patients in hospital who are positive with COVID have had no vaccine and that's with a huge amount of people, huge percent of the population vaccinated. There's also So do you think on... when Paul Reid said today that we need to turn the tide ASAP, do you think getting those people boosted or vaccinated if they hadn't been vaccinated, that that's it? That's the answer? Well, that's one aspect of it. There's also... So what are the other aspects? The other aspects are, so we have a guidance from the CMO on uh, on mask wearing and he's asking people to take have a personal risk assessment and to wear masks in the healthcare system uh, and also on our public transport system that's another aspect of advice and that's very clear to people uh, but also, I think anybody also, minister also, would say if you've been basic, on public transport recently there's very few also, people wearing masks well, that, that's that, just a fact that is the public health advice and that's clear it's written anyone can see it on the HSC website on the government's website and it's it, it's clearly outlined also there's clear guidance around if people have any symptoms uh, any cold or flu-like symptoms, uh, they should isolate, they should do an antigen test and remove themselves from the community. So that hasn't changed and if they test positive for COVID with an antigen test, they should remove themselves from the community for that seven-day period and that will help break some of the transmission cycles. Um, Christine, the Minister is saying the messaging is actually quite clear to people. Would you agree? No, I, I don't agree. And I think um, one of the biggest things that's happened in the last few weeks was when the mask mandate was dropped, I think what the public heard was the need for a mask has gone. And I think the need always remained to, to wear a mask because COVID was at eight to 10,000 cases a day at the time where we dropped our mask mandate. Um, I think at the moment we need to update our public health advice and I think the message needs to be clearer to people that at the moment we are experiencing, experiencing a surge because of this new subvariant, and therefore we need to advise people that not just on public transport but in all settings people should wear them. One of the things that's shocked me the most I think in, in the last couple of weeks is the number of older people who aren't wearing masks in indoor settings in supermarkets and shops and I think to be fair to them but who are the message following the, the message that they're hearing, which is the public health advice, is that you don't need to wear your mask anymore. So I think whatever we're, we're looking at the public health advice at the moment, I think it needs to be updated and it needs to be clearer for people that at the moment there is a greater need for masks than there was a few weeks ago. And that needs to be clear. And to be fair to the public, when we update public adv health advice, the public do adhere to that. And I think that's what we're looking for is a very simple message to the public so that people can change their behaviour. At the moment, my view is, is that if we're not updating that advice, we're not actually doing anything to address the surge. Gary Gannon, would the Social Democrats make mask wearing mandatory again or would it just be you know, a simple message to people, we would advise you to wear masks? What do you but think they should do? It's not necessarily a simple message and so I think the government have a responsibility. Look, we respect the fact that when the mandate ended a couple of weeks ago, people were in that space. 
completely. But there is a responsibility in the onus on government in terms of how we communicate messaging to people that though the mandate was gone, there's still a responsibility and a clear communication strategy. The Minister just mentioned the fact that people can go onto the HSE website. The average person on the street is not going onto a website every single day to get their messaging and their updates. We need it on the radio, we need it on their social media platforms. We need a Minister That's for Health. Well. That it's so not happening to any clear extent, Jack, if you just let me finish. Um, the, Minister of the, the Minister of Health needs to be cleared in terms of coming out and giving clear communications because that is simply missing at the minute. So in terms of what we would do, we'd better communicate the message, the responsibility. And also, guidelines. It's been, there's been an absence of guidelines in relation to ventilation, for example. Okay, we but, have, no, but I think ventilation is a really important component here because we talk about mask wearing, people are in congested settings and we still have no guidelines in relation to ventilation. So that's Olivia, do you understand why there seems to be this reluctance to bring back mandatory mask wearing or indeed just to change the public health advice that would recommend wearing masks in more settings? Well, the public I, resistant to I that. really don't understand why it was ever taken away in the first place. Like the, the WHO said that we lifted too much at uh, too soon and, and at, you know, to do everything together like that didn't make sense. There was no great clamour for people not to have to wear masks anymore. You know, people, the hospitality restrictions, yes, people really wanted to see those go. But I heard no clamour for people saying, I don't want to wear masks into a supermarket or I don't want to wear masks on the Lewis or on the bus. I really didn't see it as something that the public were looking for. And it, it is harder now, of course, to put the genie back in the bottle, to make people do a thing that they haven't been doing for the last few weeks. But I think people would do it. I'm, I'm just uh, hearing that um, Stephen Donnelly has told the Fianna Fáil Parliamentary Party meeting this evening that the numbers are actually probably far greater than we're seeing, possibly a couple of hundred thousand cases, and yet there will be no restrictions. Why the reluctance? I just say the government has taken on the public health advice from the chief medical officer uh, and the the uh, Minister for Health Stephen Donnelly receives his advice from the CMO and the, the, this government has taken very tough decisions when it's come to Covid, very unpalatable decisions on many occasions. But we were told we, before Minister that you that NEF had advised and then the government decided. Yeah, and, and, and so that's the, not what's the, happening here. It is the latest advice from the CMO is what we have implemented. Uh, and the CMO advice hasn't changed. He referenced personal and collective responsibility. He referenced specific settings where masks should be worn. And he also referenced the importance of having a, a personal risk assessment. And, and I, I accept the point that people aren't wearing them in settings that they may have worn it. But that is the, we've removed the uh, criminal uh, code when it's come to mask wearing in certain settings. Uh, and, and, and we've I think removed with, the advice with, too, haven't with, we? No, no the, no, the advice is that people should take a personal risk assessment. If, if there's higher levels of COVID in the community, which there is. So uh, what are you telling people here tonight then? Wear masks, don't wear masks, wear to wear masks. We're saying people, people need to, uh, take a personal, if, for example, if someone is immunocompromised or if they have a specific risks that they, for example, if they're not boosted or if they haven't been vaccinated, uh, they absolutely should wear masks in, 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 uh, in say, in indoor settings. But it, it's about people taking that personal risk assessment and people know uh, that they, they, they should wear a mask in, in specific assessments the, where they're at risk of COVID. Should the public be concerned that NEFET hasn't met since the 17th of February, that we haven't heard from the CMO in over a month and that the new NEFET, whatever that new grouping is, hasn't been set up yet, given where the numbers are at and given what the HSE, the INMO, the IMO, the President of the Irish Association of Emergency Medicine, 
what they've all said in the last 24 hours, which is they're overwhelmed and patient safety is being compromised. So there's, there's regular engagement between the Minister for Health and uh, the CMO uh, on a on a, if not a, on a regular basis, a daily basis about the, the public health situation uh, and about the evolving positions around uh, COVID. He is working on establishing a new COVID group um, and he expects to bring a memo to Cabinet on that shortly. So that the, the public health We were told last week that that was imminent. The public health monitoring of this has not changed. The CMO is still in situ. Uh, he is uh, obviously he's reflecting on on all of the public health indicators and he advises the, the, uh, the Minister for Health and that hasn't changed. Um, is one of the difficulties here, do you think, Olivia, that there was some sort of tension between um, Stephen Donnelly and Neffet and uh, the CMO and that's why this new grouping hasn't been formed? And there's a vacuum now? Well, who knows really, because where is Stephen Donnelly? We've, we've heard so little from him recently, so it's, it's very hard to say what that position is. Um, just finally, uh, Christine, I want to ask you about um, long COVID because I think you have concerns, given the high numbers, that there's going to be a huge number of people with long COVID now and they've really been forgotten about in this. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's really important when we talk about people who are at risk, we hear people all the time talking about people who are immunocompromised or who aren't vaccinated or who aren't boosted. Everybody is at risk from COVID, not just those groups. So the risk of COVID for an individual is unpredictable. So we have no idea the impact that COVID is going to have on any individual. We're only now starting to see the real signs coming through and the real data coming through on the impacts of long COVID on the neurological system, cardiovascular system, and even on muscles. So we're, we're in, into a situation where we really don't know the full impact of this virus. And yet there is one very simple thing that we can do to reduce people's risk, and we're just not doing it. So, you know, if the, you, public health, if the public health advice is not going to change, you know, there's all we can do as a group of scientists, as a group of experts, is to say to the public, your risk of COVID is very high. You will have no idea to be able to predict the impact COVID will have on you and your long-term health, wear a mask in indoor settings and reduce your risk. Uh, just very quickly, Gary Gannon, will the Social Democrats, uh, would they support mandatory mask wearing again? Yes or no? no? If the public, if, if the public, public health voice requests it, of course we will. We've oh, always okay. supported that. We'll leave it there. And my thanks to Professor uh, Christine Losher. The rest of the panel will be staying with me. And after the break, Dublin City Council plan to aggressively restrict road space for drivers. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
You're very welcome back. Now, Dublin City Council CEO Owen Keegan wants the council to aggressively restrict road space for drivers in favour of cyclists and pedestrians. Mr Keegan made the comments while speaking at a cycling symposium that took place throughout Dublin City last week. For more on this, I'm still joined here on my panel by Government Chief Whip and Minister of State for Sport Jack Chambers, Social Democrat TD Gary Gannon, Dublin editor with the Irish Times, Olivia Green, and Green Party councillor, Michael Pigeon. But first, uh, to the chaos at Dublin Airport this week. Uh, Minister, I'm sure you saw the footage, I think we'll see it now in a moment, of the chaos at Dublin Airport. The queues and queues of people, people waiting to check in, to get through security, and by all accounts, people were missing their flights. There seems to be a chronic staff shortage out there. Were Dublin Airport rash in laying off so many people during COVID? I think they were. I have to say I was infuriated by it. Uh, it's very frustrating to see. I mean, it was obvious um, that there'd be a pent-up demand for travel as we exited from the worst elements of the pandemic. Um, I think to see people missing their holidays, tourists not being able to get home. Uh, I think the fact that they incentivised and had a severance scheme and they lost a thousand people uh, when it was obvious that they'd need to retain pretty key and specialised personnel within the security system. Uh, it, it was demonstrated poor and, and short-term management by the Dublin Airport Authority and they need to quickly move to address it and uh, shocking scenes at our airport uh, and I have huge sympathy for, for many people who have missed their flights and uh, you know it's indefensible really. Can the government do anything to assist Dublin Airport at this stage? I know they've said they've brought on 100 security staff but they need to be trained up uh, the next couple of weeks, Easter break, it's not going to be pleasant for travellers. Well, Dublin Airport Authority are uh, are obviously a semi-state and are funded by passenger fees. Passengers are paying uh, for a proper and efficient security system. And to be fair, Dublin Airport Authority historically, uh, they've very good uh, feedback, I think, from customers over many years. But I think their uh, decision to offload people and to have a severance scheme was really short term. They had options around the employment wage subsidy scheme. And customers and passengers are paying the price for that uh, and it's extremely regrettable as I said frustrating and infuriating to see and I've uh, huge sympathy for all the passengers who've had to go through the airport in recent days and what we think will continue over the coming uh, days and weeks. All right I just want to move on to those comments from uh, Dublin City Council Chief Owen Keegan. He was attending a cycling symposium um, over the I think it was last week in Dublin. Um, what exactly did he say? Uh he said a lot of things that our national policy and that the council has been doing for the last couple of years, really. Um, but I suppose with Owen Keegan, it's the way he says things. He's, he's a man given to the colourful expression. And what he said in this case was that he wanted to aggressively restrict the amount of road space that cars have in Dublin to reallocate that space to uh, pedestrians, but more particularly to cyclists, to protected cycle lanes. Now, we've all seen this during the last couple of years of COVID. We've seen the, the, the wands going in up and down the Liffey. We've seen those protected cycle lanes going in. So that, that has clearly been the plan. And in many cases, it's parking spaces that are being given over for, for this work, but it's also traffic lanes as well. So that has been happening. He has made. He was also quite critical of drivers, wasn't he? He said they're a pretty resilient group. In yeah. other words, they're pretty hard to get off the road. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. He sort of expressed surprise on how on how resilient they've been to to the, you could say, the awkwardness now of getting around town by car. 
Uh, Michael, you cycled here this evening from uh, the city centre. Do you agree with his comments? Is this the way forward? We need to make driving so unpleasant for people in our cities that they're forced to leave their car at home. Because that is what he's kind of saying. Yeah, I think what he was really doing was setting out a challenge. And he was laying down a challenge in particular to councillors as well to get out of the way of a lot of projects. And um, when it comes to road space, you know, in the city, the city's built. We're not going to pave over the Liffey. We're not going to pave over the canals. We're working with the set space that we already have. So I think his point, and it's one that I agree with, is that if we're going to add in safe cycling and safe walking, we need to take that space away from somewhere. And at the moment, on most roads, anywhere between 70 to 100% of the space is given over to cars. So it's fairly clear where that has to come from. Uh, ideally, of course, you'd have every mode catered for with as much space as they need. But as I say, the city's built and we're not going to start knocking down all the buildings. So this is the reality of it. And I think he's preparing Dublin and Dublin's politicians for kind of the tough choices that are ahead in terms of making cycles. And what are those tough choices? Uh, I think in a lot of cases it's going to be taking out on-street parking in some areas where you need to put in a bike lane. A uh, car will generally sit there for about 90% of its life just being stored there. And that's not a good use of public space on a busy road. So understandably people don't like it if their parking space is moved or they have to go around the corner um, or have to find their own space. But that's the kind of choice that's ahead because ultimately we need to make cycling and walking safe. Is it safe or is it also about encouraging people to leave the car at home or forcing them to make it to leave the car at home because it's too expensive to park in town, because it's too awkward to drive around the city, because you're going to be stuck in traffic for too long? Is that the idea too? There's a bit of that, but we're never going to solve traffic in Dublin until we reduce the number of cars. Like it's not cyclists that are causing traffic, it's, it's the number of cars that are out there. And every time you get someone walking, cycling or taking a bus, that's another car off the road. So it makes it you know, it, it, it's the only way really to reduce traffic is, is to move the mode that people are on. So what do we do, Gary? Do we prioritise cyclists here? We make it more safe and we penalise drivers? Do you agree with that strategy? Yeah, I take umbrage with the language. We have no objection to the intent. I represent a city centre constituency that has one of the highest levels of respiratory problems in the entire country. This for me is about a quality of air care action. That's really important. Look, we, in addition to, we shouldn't be pitting cyclists against drivers. We don't need that. But that's what was happening here, yeah, really, wasn't it? Line. It's really poor communication. It's probably reflective of Owen Keegan's approach, really. Um, and I should point out, we did actually ask Owen Keegan to come on to the yeah. programme this evening, but he wasn't available. Sure, OK. But um, in addition to that, we also need kind of transport options. So there's a variety of reasons why people can't and won't cycle into the city centre. We need improved public transport. Buses, the metro, for example, would have made a huge difference when it arrives. But there's also cultural issues. Um, I was in a city centre school today, the central model on Gardner Street, talking to young girls there as to why they won't cycle. And there's a variety of issues there also. Like That's around harassment. Um, these are cultural issues that we need to get to the fore of why we can't encourage people to cycle in the city and there's a number of issues. Public transport, women not feeling comfortable to cycle on the streets, that, that's, that's a plethora of issues that we need to tackle on a national level. I think we've all seen, particularly in Dublin city centre, but I'm sure it's happening around the country, we have seen more cycle lanes um, particularly I think those were introduced um, during Covid, some would say stealthily. Um, Businesses, however, Minister, you always hear from business groups lobbying against um, increased cycle laneways um, in the city centre. They've had a particularly difficult couple of years. Is this the right time to be saying we're going to be pushing more commuters, more traffic off um, our streets and we're going to be um, reducing probably the people who are going to come in and shop in town because they're going to be on their bicycle? Is it the right time for that, for those businesses? I'll just say in the first instance, we're committed to building a 
sustainable transport system and we're seeing that underpinned with a massive active transport budget this year. Um, I would agree with... Gary's Primarily in Dublin. I, I would just, on, on just on the first point, we shouldn't be pitching road users against each other and I think the way to get make progress as Minister for Sport, I want to build an active society, see people more, more people walking, exercising, cycling, but also giving those alternatives to people who currently don't have them. So it's important that that's progressed in terms of bus connects DART, the DART Plus project. What I would say, if you look at Dublin City, there's many businesses that actually have embedded uh, huge changes across the street landscape where they've got, we've got, you know, our outdoor space, for example, in the last week, we've seen a lot more uh, people being able to eat and uh, enjoy the outdoors and coffee shops and restaurants. I think that's been a really positive development, actually, which has been beneficial for businesses because we have more pedestrians on our streets. But I think it is important that we we can do this in a way that brings people with us uh, and in a, in a way that I think sometimes language can alienate and polarise people and that's not how we build a sustainable transport system or a, an active society. So uh, I welcome uh, the, you know, the, you know, what, what the government is doing. We're trying to advance uh, you know, and underpin uh, significant budgetary allocations around active travel. Uh, but I think okay. we need to be careful about pitching ro different roads against each other. For example, people, some people don't have the option. They, they have no alternative to a car. For example, people with disabilities. Uh, it's important that we, we have to recognise them we, too. And we don't polarise them from, from the debate and we ensure that they have a continued option to use and avail of okay. transport and transit um, within our city. Um, he did point out, am I right, Olivia, that he said um, we need to aggressively restrict the spaces in the absence of a congestion charge. So is that the preference, do you think? I think Owen Keegan would very much like to see a congestion charge. He's spoken about it before, but what he said is it will require primary legislation. Mm -hmm. So that's the ball back in the government's court. There's no sign of it, you know, and, and I, I think it, it, it is what is probably, it's part of the arsenal that's needed for, for the city. Uh, Michael, would the Greens support a congestion charge in the city? It's something that unfortunately might have to be looked at, but I think that could be, that's the kind of measure that you'd look at after you've tried everything else. So the kind of stuff you try looking at would be, as I said, improving public transport, which we're doing with bus connects, improving bike lanes, uh, maybe further pedestrianising parts of the city centre. Because you've seen a lot of European cities are pedestrianising cores rather than congestion charging. So instead of saying you can come in for a fee, they're actually saying, well, actually, there's a large area of the city where you can't drive in unless you have, for example, uh, you know, a, a, a blue badge indicating disability. Uh, Gary Gannon, congestion charge in the cities um, across Ireland, but that surely would prevent traffic coming in. It certainly seemed to work in London. Would you support it? Um, yeah, it's part of a suite of in the army in terms of removing cars from the city centre, particularly for the health reasons I just outlined. But it's also about having a vision for a city. Look, commercial. But you would support a congestion charge on of how much? On a personal level, I don't know how much yet, but on a personal level, I probably would. Yeah. Um, but I suppose it's about having a vision for the city. It's about what our city can be. Look, commercial footfall was already down in the city before the pandemic. Now that people have moved to online shopping and different forms of shopping, that's going to increase. We need to give people a reason to come into the city centre. That's maybe pedestrianising. See, making it a more pleasant place to be. I don't think anyone tourist comes into our city, goes down the quays and thinks this is a pleasant environment to be in. Isn't there a big difficulty here, Minister, because a lot of the time when we introduce these um, cycleways or cycle tracks or we you know, take out parking spaces, a lot of the time what happens to the traffic is that we just reroute the traffic. And I think Owen Keegan was alluding to that when he talked about drivers being particularly resilient, particularly difficult to get them off the road. We end up rerouting them and often into you know, smaller, narrow back roads, into you know, residential areas. It doesn't always work out. 
Well, like I think when you, I'm seeing the cycling infrastructure that's been in, introduced in, around the city and you're seeing increased uh, numbers of cyclists and the data actually underpins that where you improve the infrastructure, people will take up mm -hmm. the option. But it's also important to build a public transport system, increase capacity, frequency and opportunity for people, particularly across our suburbs, uh, to use an, an alternative to their car uh, and building that uh, capital investment is something we're prioritising. Yeah. Uh, Olivia, would you agree with that, that often it just causes wider issues in the communities when traffic is rerouted or you know, a lane goes from two lanes down to one lane? To be honest, it's not what the research shows. The research shows uh, when you restrict the space for cars that the traffic, now it may sound like Pollyanna mm -hmm. thinking, but it does actually evaporate. That, that that's essentially what people don't uh, go into town. They choose other modes where they can. There will always be people who don't have that option. But what you have to do is make uh, driving so inconvenient that it's only the people who really have to that are going to do it. But there was another thing you said there earlier about the businesses and struggling businesses in the city and their opposition to these new schemes. And yet there is that opposition when these schemes are proposed after they're in, that opposition also seems to evaporate. It just seems to melt away. You could call it perhaps the sort of Grafton Street pedestrianisation effect. There is nobody uh, clamouring for Gra Grafton Street to be reopened to cars. There never was. And it, it would be seen as absurd at this stage. OK, all right. We're going to have to leave it there. But my thanks to my panel. After the break, Hollywood is still reeling from last night's Oscars. US correspondent Iris Spitzer will bring us the very latest, including the Academy's new review. Do stay with us. very welcome back. Well, Hollywood's golden night of the year, the Oscars, was thrown into chaos last night by an extraordinary on-stage confrontation. The Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts and Sciences today said it condemns the actions of Will Smith and it will launch a formal review of his slapping of presenter Chris Rock. We can now take a look at the moment that has shocked Hollywood. Jada, I love you. G.I. Jane 2, can't wait to see it. All right? <laughs> <laughs> it's, that, was a, that was a nice one. Okay. I'm out here. Uh-oh. Richard. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. Will Smith just smacked the shit out of me. Get my name out your mouth. Wow, dude. Yes. It was a G.I. Jane joke. Keep my wife's name out your mouth. I'm going to, okay? Well, joining me now from the US is correspondent Ira Spitzer for the very latest. Ira, thank you for joining us. Has the Academy been criticised for its handling of this altercation last night? And if not, why have they launched this review? Well, it's being called the slap heard around the world. And I think many viewers around the world were shocked, of course, by uh, that, that shocking slap, which we just saw there again. And also the fact that Will Smith was able to continue on, was not removed from the ceremony, was able to uh, give his acceptance speech after winning the Best Actor Oscar. So the Academy did face some 
criticism. Of course, uh, presumably they weren't expecting anything like this to happen. So uh, it was difficult perhaps to uh, make a decision on the fly. They released a bit of a statement last night on Twitter uh, saying that they don't condone violence. But now uh, a more serious statement saying they are launching a formal review. We don't know exactly what that will entail. They say there could be further consequences uh, based on California law and uh, their own code of conduct. But uh, we do know that Chris Rock, at least so far, has declined uh, to ask police to press charges. And the Los Angeles Police Department say they have no plans to do so uh, unless Chris Rock were to change his mind on that count. So uh, still, we're all talking about it today. Very, uh, very unusual situation taking place at the Oscars. Um, some of the speculation, Ira, about some of those consequences are Will Smith potentially being stripped of his Oscar. Right. That is something that is being discussed. Now, the uh, Academy hasn't uh, indicated that they have any plans to do so. And we've really seen uh, some division, at least in, on social media and in the general discussion here, although I would say that most people uh, seem to be, by and large, on Chris Rock's side here. But uh, I think there is a level of understanding for Will Smith's reaction, at least in the sense of uh, that immediate reaction to uh, defending, as he saw it, his wife's honor. But what we haven't seen from Will Smith, which many would perhaps like to see, uh, is, is a real apology to Chris Rock. He uh, did sort of apologize to the Academy in the acceptance speech, but uh, in general, I think a lot of people are looking for uh, more of an explanation and some contrition uh, from Will Smith for uh, what appeared to be an assault on live television. So uh, that is perhaps still to come. We'll have to see what, uh, what happens, if anything. With this review. All right, we'll leave it there. Uh, Ira, thank you for your uh, time this evening here in studio. Is showbiz editor with the Irish Daily Star, Sandra Mallon, and via Skype, entertainer Catherine Lynch. Uh, you're both very welcome to the programme. Sandra, just very briefly, there was speculation online today too that this was a stunt or that Will Smith had actually thrown a fake punch. Has that now all been dismissed? Oh, that's all definitely been dismissed. I think this morning when we woke and we saw the clip, which is still is so uncomfortable to watch, um, you know, hours later, I think we all kind of thought that maybe it was a publicity stunt, but then people started to question, well, why winning his first Oscar, would he actually risk such a stunt that could can go wrong on him? And then I, I think as well, watching him walk off stage and the mic not being on him and the verbal sort of altercation that happened afterwards it definitely wasn't a publicity stunt at all uh, was it damaging for will smith then to come on when he was making his acceptance speech when he got um the award when he got the oscar and say love makes you do crazy things like almost trying to justify his behavior yeah, I think, like i mean i don't know if that did him any like he didn't apologize to chris either and he you know there was no he but he wanted to apologize for his actions to the academy more so because i think he realized his repercussions because in that split second you can see that he's making a decision on whether or not how to approach this and um but he made no apologies to chris rock so i mean i don't know what the fallout will be now with this formal review in the last hour or so with the academy uh, with their statement that they've made i just want to go to catherine uh, who is uh, on line for us this evening catherine uh, you're on skype there thank you for joining us what do you How make of this as an entertainer was this a joke that went wrong or was it an insult to um, Will Smith's wife, Jada. 
Um, it was male violence. That's what it was in the in the long run, and it's something that we just have been talking about all year, especially here. And it's just completely and utterly wrong. Everyone is talking about, you know, um, excuses for him and maybe the backstory. There is no excuse, uh, like. There's no excuse even as an actor to another actor to break the fourth wall and go up on stage when somebody else is there, but to actually go up and punch somebody in the name of his wife, which, like if she had gone up and given given a slap in a Maureen O'Hara style and just walked out, that might have been okay. But it's not okay for a man to go up and use used his wife in a way to probably get back at uh, Chris Rock for lots of stuff that has been said about their family. You know, um, Rebel, Rebel Wilson has said stuff, Chris Rock has said stuff before. So I'd say there's an ongoing spat going on there and it's toxic. Whatever's there going on, it's very... a wider discussion here about comedians and the jokes that we make, they make? Because clearly Chris Rock was making a joke about Jada Pinkett Smith, the fact that she is bald, the fact that she has alopecia. It was a joke at her expense, at her illness. Is that okay? Is that fair game? I, I, I hope he didn't know, because if he did know, it's really nasty. But I have a suspicion he didn't know that she has alopecia, because she's stunning. Like, I mean, she's just a beautiful woman sitting there, with which looks like she has, um, like, she, that it looks like she, she has, it's on purpose because it's so stunning. So maybe I just hope against hope, maybe I'm being kind that he didn't know she had alopecia. If he'd known, if he known, it is really nasty. If he didn't know, it's very tame, light, gentle. Uh, G.I. Jane was stunning, gorgeous. Demi Moore was stunning. She's stunning. So, and she talks a lot like uh, about her own alopecia. So he either saw that or he didn't. I hope he didn't, you know? Uh, Sandra, do you see this as a form of comedy? If he knew that she suffered from alopecia, I would think that I kind of find it's the lowest form of comedy to comment on someone's appearance when it's an illness, it's an illness related appearance. That's if he knew, then it, like Catherine said, it would be really nasty. If he didn't know, then it was supposed to be taken as a lighthearted joke. Even when the altercation happened, Chris didn't even um, apologize for it. And I think Will would have been better off actually having a verbal confrontation with him on stage. And I think today the conversation would have been a lot more different, a lot different about Will defending his wife on stage verbally and demanding a public apology from Chris as opposed to a private apology. Uh, is anybody though, um, Catherine, uncomfortable with this idea? And we heard uh, our reporter there who came from America saying, you know, Mills Will Smith was motivated by defending his wife's honor. I mean, have we not moved beyond that a little? We've moved beyond that. Us women do not need to be defended anymore. We can defend our bloody self, as we have proven. And we don't need violence. Uh, violence, violence, whatever I want to say wrong. But um, we don't need that. That's not defending us. That's actually making it okay that that still goes on in this absolute arrogant way that, like, the only time I ever slapped a man was when he actually defended me in a pub and knocked a man to the ground. And I turned around, slapped him on the face and said, don't you dare ever defend me like that. And, and in my defence, hurt another man because I'm not going to have that on my head. You know, so uh, that, that we, we just, well, it's just, it really answer, boils I think. my blood. Catherine, isn't that what we're trying to say this evening? Do you worry, because yeah. I saw Cathy Griffin, the comedian, tweeting today and she said, this is really dangerous because this legitimises an assault on a comedian for a joke. Would you agree yeah, with that? Really... And it has a gagging effect. 
on comedians? Of course it has a gagging effect. I haven't, uh, I haven't told a joke in Ireland in about 10 years because I couldn't be bothered because the, the currency is too high. And especially in Ireland, if you say a joke that somebody decides that they're going to cancel you, you're finished. And it's, um, it's not worth it anymore. And there will be such tame comedy now. There will not be the court jester that has the strength and the courage to go in and tickle the underbelly of a society and actually ridicule what's supposed to be ridiculed. So the intelligent people in this world are now making way for the unintelligent to feel disgruntled or whatever. Now, I, I really do believe that if that lady is 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 offended by that um, she has every right to be and if he knew that that was uh, that she had alopecia well then he's completely wrong but i have my suspicions he didn't you know and, do we uh, do we feel where's Sandra... it also, also so much going on in the world that this was like we are a global village at this stage when it comes to cancelling actually the whole world has stopped to listen to this stupid argument when there's all so many other things going on in the world and we and i'm sure it has triggered a lot of people who have been victims of, of domestic violence and all that, which is a far bigger sin. Um, speaking of uh, cancelling, who do you think is going to emerge out of this the most damaged, Sandra? Is it Chris Rock and his style of comedy and perhaps, you know, um, comedians in general, or is it Will Smith? I don't know. I think probably Will Smith. I think, I, I, you know, I, I suppose I never really thought about it, about how it would come out on him. I think it was his first Oscar that he'd won and it completely tainted him and he'd be forever known. Like, as Chris said, that was the, you know, the biggest moment in, in TV history that it's going to go down. So I possibly Will comes out worse than this. And one of the saddest things here is that this event now has been totally overshadowed. Yeah. Um, all of those who won last night, they possibly had their night ruined by this because there were people, including uh, Kenneth Branagh, who yeah. won uh, his award last night for Best Original Screenplay, but nobody's talking about that I today. I know, he finally won his first Oscar after decades of being nominated. Um, Best Screenplay for Belfast, so well-deserved. And it just, it's completely overshadowed that, of course, our own Jesse Buckley and Kieran Hines as well, they missed out, but still, um, to be nominated was an amazing thing. But for Kenneth, yeah, it's, it's all completely overshadowed um, the whole event, even for Best Picture for Coda, um, too, uh, which would be, that was the first streaming service to, be, to win an Oscar as well. Um, that's all overshadowed now as well after it. Um, do you think, Catherine, it is wrong that the Oscars, um, which I think is airing tonight, that they have edited out this altercation? Should they have left it in? I'm not sure. I'd say they, they really have to bring it to the table and discuss it. I don't think that airing this again, it's too ugly. It's too upsetting. It's, it's yeah, I, I think they were the right to edit it out and let people enjoy the beauty that was created by all those absolutely and utterly talented people. Give, give Belfast a chance, you know, give give all these wonderful movies and wonderful actresses and actors and the Williams girls. Look, imagine how they feel today, you know? Do you expect so, to see Chris uh, Rock yeah, back at the Oscars or do you think his time at the Oscars is finished? No, it's like the Oscars is fantastic. Who doesn't love the Oscars? It's just, it's all his fault. He needs to take responsibility and she needs to take responsibility as well for him. Bring him to the, as, as a good wife to do and give him a good scolding. <laughs> but um, hopefully, I don't want it to see anyone too punished, you know, but um, 
yeah, he, he just should not have done it, you know? Like, and you think- I'm not going to sit either as a, as a person who cancels anyone. I'm just thinking that he was wrong. And it's okay to be wrong. He was really wrong. All right. he, um, he did the wrong thing on a global stage. He can apologise on a global stage too. Uh, very briefly, do you think is. we will see a move away from, you know, comedians? We've seen Ricky Gervais before, now Chris Rock, from people like that hosting these big events. No, I actually don't. Because the Academy, for years, they have suffered with ratings. And I actually think that this has been uh, kind of a ratings hit for them. It's all that everyone's talking about today. And I don't see them moving away from comedians at all. All right, we're going to leave it there. And my thanks to uh, Sandra and to Catherine and all my panel for joining me. From the late team here, it's good night and do take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.